0: he the first time it came the first kind of pay cycle he walked up to me and handed me this wad of d marks deutsch marks this was before we were on euros and kind of sheepishly explained oh getting the work permit is a lot harder than i thought and i was like horrified like oh my god they're gonna throw me on a plane and ship me back to america in the middle of the night
1: You're listening to The Enterprising Expat. Stories of women who packed up their lives and moved abroad for love, a job, or a fresh start. What does it take to build a new life and business in a new country? What does it take to go from finding your feet to thriving? Find out how each woman did it. Be inspired, whether you're an expat or digital nomad, to bloom where you're planted. Hi, welcome back to The Enterprising Expat. Before I get into my next episode, Interview, which was just, it was funny. It was so nice to speak to Eleanor because she just made me laugh. She's got a really great wit. But before I get into the interview, I want to first apologize for my absence and then explain. If you listen to the last episode, I was, I suppose, freaking out about COVID and its impact. And then as I live in the U.S., the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests about the killing of George Floyd, they had an impact. They had an impact all around the world. And they had an impact on me as a black woman living in the U.S. I felt that with both of these crises occurring, it was inappropriate to just blithely ignore what was happening and carry on in a straight line and just ignore it. So when I stopped producing, it was to process all my feelings, first of all, and that's that's a work in progress. And it was also just to give space for the voices that were speaking up for Black Lives Matter. It was to give space to people who could tell us what to do after protests, um, how we can support this movement. And also, you know, to just show some empathy with people who are being affected by COVID. So all of this to say that it just didn't feel appropriate to just blithely carry on in a straight line. And my break turned into a two month absence. If you've been following me on social media, there were some explanations there, but this is just an explanation for you, the people who subscribe to my podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you listening. That is my explanation of why there were no podcasts so back to my guest eleanor is from the us she lives in germany and these episodes that i'm going to be releasing were all recorded before we the world went into lockdown so it was you know just sort of pre lockdown so we may touch on COVID, but certainly there aren't going to be references to the Black Lives Matter movement in the podcast because a lot of these were recorded before, before, um, before that occurred. So Eleanor, I found her on Instagram. She's a web designer. She is a mum. She has. A story that starts in Central America and then um, I think there are some visits to South America too. So we're going to hit today Nicaragua. We are going to go to India and then we are going to make our way to Germany where she lives now. But I will let her tell you about how she wound up in Germany, what she's doing there the explanation of the little snippet you heard at the beginning. So welcome back. And here's Eleanor.
0: Yeah, my name is Eleanor Meyerhofer. That's, uh, that's not my, that's my married name. I don't have a German name. Uh, my maiden name is Eleanor Ray. And I am a native Californian. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. And I lived in San Francisco for many years before I moved to Germany, Munich, Germany in 1999. I think it was. Yeah, the fall of 99. And I'm a graphic designer. I studied graphic design in San Francisco. I started in book design. And now um, it was the late 90s when I graduated. So then everything went digital then and I became a web designer. And um, that is what I'm doing now. That's
1: super. I like how you were just on the cusp. So... You know, I was also I had fully formed thoughts in the 90s. You know, I wasn't a baby. I think I I was a teen.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting being in in kind of the digital branch, but not being a digital native, because like you said, I was on the cusp. And when I was learning graphic design, it was still like we still had some old codger teachers that made us do old stuff like use repro blue pencils, which is a thing where like, it was when graphic design was all photography based, and they took pictures of what you did. And we kept saying, you know, I don't think we're going to need this. But they said, Oh, you never know, maybe the electricity will go out or whatever. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) we were right, we didn't need any of that stuff. So I actually started as a book designer. Um, And so I would do something called book compositing which is where you kind of make all of the text fit on the pages and also book cover design. And that wasn't actually that weird to me because my father is a letterpress printer. So I grew up around typography and and book arts. And a lot of those teachers, I would say they're kind of two categories. I had a really excellent, excellent typography teacher. He was an older man from France. And some of the basics you learn don't really change if, regardless of whether you're in print or digital, good typography is good typography. There are some differences about what, the typefaces you use. But so, so some of those kind of old school teachers actually gave you a good foundation. Um, but then there were just some things that were like, you know, the mechanics and techniques of how graphic design was executed that just... They really just became obsolete. But people then were still looking for, I would say, just good layout, good typography, again, the basics of of good design. And you just didn't have, like when I was working at a big agency here, you know, people – the. there were no classes for what was happening at that point. You couldn't, you could, you could, it was more like, what software do you know? Do you know how to use Photoshop? That's what the kind of questions people were asking. Um, there were no interaction design class. There was none of that. Like, it just kind of, it felt like at the time it happened overnight. And it was really like, do you know how to use Adobe products? And if you did, you yeah. got a job.
1: <laughs> yeah. What made the travel bug bite?
0: Um, I I can tell you very specifically I had a while I was still in design school I had a part-time job at Grace Cathedral which is a big uh, cathedral on top of Knob Hill and it was just like a data entry job it was no big deal and but for some reason they would go on these interfaith exchange trips and I wasn't like my job wasn't religious and I'm not religious but they would have these interfaith trips and They were going on a trip to Nicaragua, and I thought that'd kind of be interesting. I don't know. I really don't remember why. I think I just thought it'd be interesting and why not. And a a few of my coworkers were also my age, and they were good friends. And so we thought, oh, yeah, we'll all take this trip together. And it ended up being really life-changing because up until that point, like many Americans, my world travel included, like, a trip to Canada and Hawaii. So I really hadn't seen much of the world. And I remember, I mean, we were staying in Managua and one day, and we were kind of visiting all these different projects that were happening, like a coffee plantation. And one day we're going out to a, a school that I think the cathedral had helped fund with another organization. And I just remember being on the back of this pickup truck and going across, you know, the countryside of Nicaragua. And it really hit me like the world is an enormous place. And we presumably only get one spin around, and I just knew at that moment I wanted to see as much of it as I could. And it really, it like hit me like a bolt of lightning. It was just something I knew at that moment. And um, after that, I I had a chance to go on a trip to India, and I went to India, and then I. A friend of mine was making a documentary in Cuba and she was able to get me a permit to go. So I went to Cuba and I just I just couldn't get enough of traveling. And that was really the moment and the time that it happened.
1: Awesome. So what was your family's opinion about, you know, all of this travel you're doing? Did they think that it was safe? Did they think it was a great opportunity? Um, It's so interesting because I am really the
0: only one in my family like this. Nobody. they're, They're not big travelers. Um, I think they thought it was great, but, you know, it wasn't their cup of tea. Um, the trip to India, my aunt's husband, um, was originally from Mumbai. And so the way I got that trip was my aunt hated making the trip. And so he said, uh, my little cousin was maybe one, I don't know. And he said, Hey, I'll pay your way. And when we get there, you just help me take care of the Dylan was a little boy's name. He's in college now, but I was like, yeah, done. Sure. (laughs) A free trip. I'll go. (laughs) And, um, you know, so there was no, I wouldn't say there was any concern from my family. It was just more of like a, uh, bemused, uh, (laughs) curiosity about why I do that. But I have actually quite an international family. My other aunt, her husband is originally from Japan. And so, they would take trips to Japan every year. But most of my other family members, they make these international trips under duress. They don't like actually traveling. But for me, um, I don't like the actual act of traveling, but I do like being in other countries and other cultures.
1: OK, I I love the actual act of traveling. Once I get to the airport, I am, I'm just like, OK, I'm making this as comfortable as I can be all the way. I get there early, I have a nice lunch, I sit in the lounge, all of that. I love it. I, I make sure that I am spoiling myself at the airport. Okay. <laughs> the time I think the most
0: about winning the lottery is like when I'm traveling.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So how do you get to Germany? What's that thought process? What was happening? Yeah, that was
0: total... Uh, Detour. I really, really was fascinated with Latin America and I wanted to spend more time traveling in Latin America. And at that time, I could also tell you like every single conflict that had ever taken place in Central and South America. Um, but I had also just finished school and I'm a, I'm a really pragmatic person. So I knew I kind of needed to start my career and get a job somewhere. And um, or kind of a couple things. And I I didn't want to travel anymore and be a tourist. I really wanted to go somewhere and kind of really live in a different culture. And there was a confluence of events that happened. So we, I was living in a, with a bunch of my friends and we were roommates in San Francisco and we had one extra room and this guy from Munich, he was half American, but he was from Munich originally, moved in. And so, you know, when you're all, around college age, and you've got one person from another country, all their friends come and visit you in San Francisco. So he kind of had a few friends that were from Munich. And then I had a really good friend that I went to art school with, who was from Vienna, or around Vienna, and him and his girlfriend were also neighbors. So it's he went back after he graduated, he came back to Europe. Again, this was the very late 90s. And he did a lot of package design, and I was telling him, man, you got to do this web design stuff. It's really great. There's tons of work. And then he was like, yeah, but how does it work? And I was like, you just make everything in Photoshop. And I remember sitting in a beer garden and him saying like, wait, you just make it all in Photoshop and then some nerd makes it work. And I was like, yeah, it's great. Um, <laughs> and he was like, well, you should just come here and we should just start a web web design agency. And I said, "Well, okay." And I figured at that time, you know, I would just come here and what's the worst that would happen? I just didn't work out, I'd go home." Um, yeah. So, it was a completely ridiculous idea, but I did it anyway. I think at that time I also just felt like I was at the I was in my late 20s and I thought, "Okay, either like get a job and get married and have kids and then that's my life." Like I just felt like it was That was the sliver of time where I could just do something wild. And um, so I said, no, I think I'm going to just go to Germany and see what happens. And uh, and no regrets there. So, yeah. So then I, I came to Munich on my tourist visa.
1: Wow. How much support did you have? Or are you somebody who just makes a decision and then you don't need input? You just go?
0: I think the latter. I think that the play, the point I was in uh, in my life made that very easy. So it was, again, kind of that really post post college phase. So all of my best friends were living in different parts of the country. So I had a couple of friends in New York. I had a couple of friends in L.A. I had friends in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, but everybody had kind of scattered. So I didn't really feel like I had this big community that I had had when I was studying. Um, I had just ended this really dumb relationship. And so that was, there was nothing like that holding me back. Everything was kind of like, there were no ties. And, um, my family, my parents were like, what are you, what are you doing? Germany? Huh? What? But you know, they were happy to let me keep a few boxes in the garage and you know, I don't think anybody really thought I would be gone, you know, 20 years, but are your boxes still in the garage? <laughs> I think they finally made me get rid of some of the stuff. But there's still, I'm sure I've got at least one or two boxes in the garage. Yeah.
1: What was your experience as an American when you got to Germany? And how do you feel people perceived you as an American?
0: Yeah, this is really interesting. It's a minefield. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's also interesting being American. So when I came here, things have a really changed in twenty years. But Munich is—it's not Berlin, but it's a city—and I just, but I—I I didn't feel very out of place here, even though I grew up in LA and the Bay Area and like much more multicultural environments. I also think. Um, For better or for worse, especially after I got my job, to some degree, there's like a little bubble about being an American that kind of shields you from a lot of shitty attitudes or discrimination.
1: Okay. So what were some of the mindsets that you had to get used to or learn how people think differently in Germany?
0: One thing, especially between American and German business, a friend of mine who's a German professor summed it up well, is that the American mindset and the way they develop rules and laws and legislation is, let's just try something, and when things go wrong, we'll create some laws around it or we'll create some rules. And the German mindset is, let's try and think through Everything that could possibly go wrong, make all the laws and rules, and then you can do your thing. (laughs) So it's kind of, um, I find that here and each, each, my way of being has its pros and cons. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do find I sometimes, sometimes I want to just do something guns blazing, but no, you have to have this very complicated Impressum page. I mean, this isn't a big deal, but there's just all these kind of little legalistic things you've got to think about, just like GDPR. It's a good thing, but it's a nuisance. And so there are a lot of, um, a lot of laws and regulations that you have to, and things that feel nitpicky to me as an American, even though rationally or intellectually, I know it's like, The reasons for them are good. It just feels like you have to work within all these annoying constraints.
1: (laughs) I think sometimes people feel that way in general about a lot of EU rules. Yeah. (laughs) Not just Germany. How did you have to change the way you worked? Did you have to change the way you worked and interacted with people?
0: Yes and no, because I deliberately, my first business I really created. For the most part, my goal was doing something that I could sell to a non-German market for a couple of reasons. Because I my German, like I could speak German and that's fine. But like I am like written German, forget it, it's terrible. Um, and I just, the whole idea of like trying to do an online business in German was just too daunting. And fortunately, my brother-in-law is a um, tax advisor and he like did all the legal stuff that I needed to worry about. So I had that in place and that was just, You know, lucky, but I very much made the conscious decision to deal with English speaking and, in particular, American markets, because I also knew I was selling a downloadable, printable product. And at the time, I just also felt like, and I think rightly so, that English speaking markets were going to be more amenable to a product like that. I also find, at least here in Germany, again, I think these attitudes are changing. Especially as the world just gets more and more digital, but at the time there was just a lot of skepticism about things online, and uh, you know why would I do that if I could just do it myself? And um, where Americans tend to be like, oh yeah, great, here, here's my money, and let me just try this out. Okay,
1: okay, let's wheel it back a bit because I, we kind of uh-huh. rushed forward five years. Uh-huh. So you get to the US and you are on uh-huh. a tourist visa. Mm -hmm. You mean, I get to Germany. I'm sorry. Listen to me. You get to Germany. (laughs) Thank you. You're on a tourist visa. Um, And then what are the hurdles you're hitting in trying to set up this business, trying to develop a network and not speaking the language, but also trying to develop your career there?
0: Yeah, well, the hurdle, the first hurdle was, is that the whole idea was completely ridiculous. (laughs) because this friend of mine had no contacts in Munich. He was from, like I said, around Vienna. I spoke no word of German. I had a bunch of money in the bank that I'd saved from my startup freelancing. Um, but we would just, we like got this, this studio and we set it up and made it look really cool. And then we, you know, spend every morning surfing the internet. And then, he's Viennese, so he'd be like, oh, time to get a coffee. And so after like a month of doing that, I was like, you know, I can't do this forever. My money's going to run out. And I was going to the immigration office and the woman there was ridiculously nice. And she just kept, I was like, you know, I'm kind of going to maybe get a job. I'm kind of working with a friend. And she said, look, you either have to get a real job and get a so you can get a working permit or you have to get married. So here's three more months. And she just kept re-stamping my passport. So this went on, I don't know, six months. And then I was like, okay, I, I really do have to get a job. And I got a job at a little design agency that, that they did websites and book design. So I was kind of like a sweet spot um, designer. But they also didn't realize, I mean, and I, I'm sure it's still somewhat the case. If you want to hire somebody who's not a national, you have to have a good reason for doing it. And the guy who ran the agency was like, oh, I'm sure we can get you a work permit. No problem. And I was like, "Okay," because at that point, I really was like, I just want a work permit. I had decided I wanted to stay. And I was starting to get nervous about the kind of (laughs) illegitimate way that I was staying in the country or working rather. And so he, (laughs) the first time it came, the first kind of pay cycle, he walked up to me and handed me this wad of Deutsche Deutschmarks. This is before we were on Euros. And kind of sheepishly explained, oh, getting the work permit is a lot harder than I thought. And I was like horrified, like, oh, my God, they're going to throw me on a plane and ship me back to America in the middle of the night. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, OK, this isn't cool. I need to. And he can say, no, no, we're going to get you the work permit. We're going to get you the work permit. But I had started looking for another job. And then I found a big American agency that was just starting their kind of Germany operations. And I got a job with them. And that was like a total game changer, because once you're you're part of a big corporation, it just greases the wheels for everything.
1: What makes you strike out on your own? Where, where do, how does this change happen?
0: Um, what happened was it was a great experience. I actually stayed there for 10, just about 10 years. Um, and I learned a lot and worked on like big accounts. Uh, but what eventually happened was, I mean, at big agencies, you end up not doing really creative work. You do a lot of stuff that has to adhere to pre existing brand style guides. And I was kind of I kind of got channeled into more creative project management, which again, I learned a lot. It was great, but you just spend a lot of your time on conference calls and making PowerPoint decks and running project plans through Excel and projects get increasingly complex. So the company that I was at, they had a big development um, center in India. So you're working with a local team doing the design and the developments happening offshore it just it just wasn't fun after a while. And I wanted to kind of get back to the design I was doing um, when I left, which was like book covers. I didn't want to do necessarily book covers per se, but I wanted to do small projects where you had a sense of accomplishment when they were done and that you had some creative control over. And that was really, it was more of a, you know, a creative yeah. impulse. That was the reason I decided I wanted to freelance.
1: Was that... Was that a scary decision for you, though? Were you afraid of losing the security of that corporate job? Totally,
0: totally, totally. It, it it probably the whole process probably took me about three years I or probably longer. I was pretty unhappy in that job for the last four years. But you kind of go back and forth. You think like, well, the pay is good. uh, the whole idea of starting your own business is like, how am I going to get clients? How's this going to work? Um, but I also, one of the things that happened, which I'm glad that happened, it didn't feel good at the time was I had been on an assignment in Miami and I thought I had a bad cold before I left, but it turned out for some reason, um, I had, my lungs were full of fluid and my heart sac was full of fluid. So on this business trip, I had to have this heart operation and it was really, um, really harrowing. And, and I was, you know, only 34 at that point. So that was one of those kinds of incidents that makes you take stock of things. And I still stayed at the company, I think for another two years, but I switched my role. So it wasn't quite as stressful. Um, but that was when I knew like, I'm out of here, it, you know, not tomorrow. But, you know, and I saved some money and I sold some stock. So I had security. I didn't just jump out the window. So I, that's what, I saved some money. I sold some stock. So I had a little bit of money. I had a cushion, um, at that, by that point, I was yeah married and my husband had a full-time job and my fallback was always, and to some degree still is, but not so much anymore, was I can always freelance. So from the 10 years of that job, I had a huge network of people that had gone to different agencies or companies and I could always pick up projects as a freelancer. So I had some, a kind of a plan B for quitting my job. But a lot of it, honestly, was psychological. That was the hardest part. It's, It may sound weird, but you kind of feel like you lose some status when you're not associated with a big company. And that was, I think, the biggest hurdle to get over.
1: Yes. No, I understand that completely. You're like, yeah, I'm just like a one-woman show over here, and they've got that yeah. big, old, glossy building. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So going out on your own, did you what what's what am I trying to say? You had all of this experience and then you had this great network. What new skills did you have to develop is what I'm trying to say.
0: yeah, I made so many mistakes, and I think the biggest one is you think you know so much because you've been in this corporate environment, but doing it on a kind of micro scale is a much 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 it's a totally different ball game, and i so at, this was like 2006, 2007. So I, I opened an online store and there were not a lot of options back then. I think the first one I started with was a Yahoo store. And then I switched to Joomla, which is an open source platform. There was, I don't think there was Shopify at the time. There was no Etsy. There was nothing like this. So I was like trying to do all this tech stuff and that is not my strong suit. And I also thought, and this was kind of a, mentality thing that I brought from working in a company. Like I should actually scale this really fast. And so I should do this in English and German. Um, even though, despite what I just said about really trying to focus on an American market. So I got really obsessed with like, I have to roll this out in more languages, which was completely stupid. I didn't, I could have just left everything in English. And I got really bogged down in a lot of the tech stuff and the marketing stuff. And I think this is a challenge for anybody who is a maker or producing their own product is you get torn in so many directions because you've got to set up the business and that alone is a full-time job just like setting up a business and then you have to produce your product so I was designing invitations and so I think if I had done it all over again I mean hindsight is 2020 I would have first had like at least one or two lines of product before I went out, because I was always kind of running behind on producing new designs um, with trying to like deal with all the web stuff and write all my copy. And, you know, at this time, like the big way I would market was like write to blogs. Like there was all of this. I was just I felt like I was doing 25 things,
1: not enough and kind of poorly. I I can see that because sometimes I get stuck in that now and um, I feel like I should be producing, producing, producing and I've learned that Mm -hmm. I should just close my calendar, produce Mm -hmm. and then open up my calendar because sometimes I'm sitting there putting out fires and nobody is making a booking, you know? So it's just like, yeah, create the stuff first. Okay. So with lessons learned, how did your business develop? How did you go into new lines? Where are you now?
0: Okay. So, well, that business I wound down and closed, but I had some lucky breaks. Um, I guess I say lucky breaks, but they weren't lucky in the fact that I did just keep producing work in spite of not having enough. So some of my designs landed in Martha Stewart. That was like the first big one, in Martha Stewart weddings. And um, and I didn't I didn't solicit any of these. I would. <laughs> I remember one morning just lying in bed and thinking, I just need to throw on the towel. This is not working. This isn't happening. And then like opening up my inbox and there was an editor from Martha Stewart saying, we really love your designs and we want to put them in our April issue. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. And then stuff landed in Goop, Architectural Digest, Glamour. I kept getting stuff in magazines, which was good. And I, like I said, at that time, a lot of the way you would market was like featured posts on blogs or buying ads on blogs. And, and then I also opened an Etsy store. So I was like selling in a couple of different channels. And so for a while it was doing pretty well, but then two basically two, well, three things happened. I re-platformed. So I got off my Joomla store and went, I used a platform called PrestaShop and something went wrong with my SEO. And this was in 2012. I think it was a combination of Google changes algorithm And I re-platformed and suddenly my traffic just hit rock bottom. It just went off a cliff. And that's like, you kind of live or die with that. So my sales really tanked. And so then I was like, okay, I'm going to ramp up my Etsy game. And so I just kept trying to sell more and more on Etsy. And then over time, like sales kind of picked up a little bit and flatlined. But by that time, there were so many people offering the same thing. And I remember I went to the National Stationery Show, which is a big stationery show that happens in New York every year. I think this was 2015 and I talked to a woman who ran a very very successful invitation business. They had they did letterpress invitations and they had a San Francisco and a London print shop. And she said I'm closing up. And I said, "Really? You? Why?" And she said because either you have the Giants like Minted or Wedding Paper Divas or Tiny Prints. Or there's like 10,000 Etsy sellers doing this and there's just no room. It's just too saturated. So I remember thinking at that time, kind of seeing the writing on the wall and like, either I have to like ramp this up into something huge, which I don't want to do. And I don't know that I'm prepared, capable to do, or this is going to be a hobby. So I just started ramping things down and doing more freelancing. And I knew that I wanted to keep designing stuff but not with the pressure to constantly sell. So I just, I started doing more licensing. So selling designs to Minted. And um, I was working with a group for a while where you just do designs and then they would sell them to places. So some things ended up like CVS has design lines. So I did that for a while. And then I also did some designing for a big it's called Kartenmachernerei that's kind of like minted in the German-speaking countries. But even that changes. This is the thing. Everything changes like every 18 months. So that was going really well for a while. And then they got bought this, this one in Germany. And then they said, we're not doing this model anymore with licensing. So you just kind of have to always be prepared to change what you're doing. Because especially in the digital world, things, things change really fast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where are you now in terms of your business?
0: Right now, I'm a web design shop. And this has also been a lot, like in contrast to my decision to move to Germany, like my business decisions take a long time to percolate. <laughs> I remember I was still, I was freelancing and kind of thinking, this was after I kind of knew the stationery, I did close down my stationery business. I was kind of taking a brush up German class and people would, Routinely asked me if I do websites, and I would always say no. I really resisted the idea of client work. I just, I think after my experience in a in, at, the, at the corporate agency, I really just didn't want clients. That's why I had a download and print business. I was like, I'm just going to put my designs up, and people can buy them or not. But I am not working with clients because my mindset at that time was that means you have no creative freedom and. There's 20 people making decisions and it's just frustrating. So I remember sitting next to this French woman in like a brush up German course and she had an interesting little business about like kind of doing artisanal beehives and stuff with honey. And she said, oh, I really need a website. And I said, oh, I don't do that. And she just said, why? And I, was, I didn't have a good answer. I was like, well, uh, I don't know, because it actually sounded like a yeah. fun project. So this kind of percolated in my head for a while, but I was just doing more freelancing at agencies and one thing I didn't do in my first business was really think about the ideal client um, that I was marketing towards. So I really tried to think about who do I want to do this for? And as I got clearer and clearer on that, I um, started thinking seriously about having a web design business. Um, and then a couple of things happened in between. It. Like I had a baby <laughs> and I wanted just more flexibility because freelancing, you, you have to go somewhere usually and yeah. show up. And if you have your own business, you can, if you need to work at midnight or, you know, work at your own schedule. But then I just sort of, I took a couple projects kind of as experimental projects to see if I'd like doing them. And I did much to my surprise, if you were thoughtful about the kind of clients you picked up as much as you could be, I mean, you can't just be super choosy when you're starting out. I found that I actually really liked the work. And so then I just said, okay, I'm doing this and I threw up a website really fast, which I'm in the p- process of redesigning. Um, and another decision I made, which is a tough decision and a hard one, but I decided I'm not going to take any more freelance work um, because I feel like in some way that was always a crutch that didn't really totally make me commit to the business that I had. And if you kind of take that out, it puts a little more of a fire under your ass to really make it work. <laughs>
1: So with this, we can't get away from it. Um, with this pandemic. Oh, yeah. How has, I mean, in the last couple of months, how has this affected your business? And how are you trying to plan around a deadline that is uncertain? Yeah. When this is all over, how has it impacted your business and what are you doing to cope?
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, this I've like officially been doing this only since last September. So um, I had or have two projects going. Unfortunately, I could kind of do them as slowly as I needed to. N- neither one had like an urgent launch date because what happened to me is like I suddenly had no child care. Um, my husband works full time. He's the main breadwinner. So that meant I was going to be full time parent and homekeeper. So, you know, and I can work a little bit at night, but with everything being so hectic, you kind of don't want to really burn the candle at two ends because the next day will be terrible. So it's, I will say it's really frustrating. I'm really chomping at the bit to get back to it. But my, what I've been doing is, um, I'm more, like I said, I'm working on relaunching my website and I really, I took a couple of copywriting classes for this, or I took a one copywriting class. I'm really trying to really think about, you know, how it will convert. And the one I have now, I just threw up because I needed a site for something. So I've been a, little, a lot more intentional about this website. Um, and right before this all happened, I had a professional branding shoot, which I can highly recommend. I hated every minute of it, but, um, the woman <laughs> I hired was excellent. And it really, I mean, having professional photography and it was a mix of like, portraits and lifestyle stuff and it's just made it's almost like me designing the the new site it's like design itself because i just have all this great photography to work with and also you know stuff to put on instagram so what i'm just doing is i'm hoping that something will return to some semblance of normal and then i can hit the ground running when i do so the workarounds i've been doing is i've just trying to i've been a lot more active on instagram uh than i usually am i want to blog a lot i've I love blogging and I've been blogging since 2006. Um, but I'm I kind of got this bottleneck until I relaunched the site. I don't want to have to migrate a ton of content. So I'm kind of held off on my blogging. Um, and I was hosting these kind of ask me anything coffees in real life because I really like meeting in person with just a small amount of people. And I love talking shop. So I had one of those planned for April 24th. And I, I really don't think that's going to happen. So I will probably try to move those online. Yeah. And I'm just trying to show up in the little ways that I can and the scraps of time that I have.
1: Yeah. I think we need to remember this is hard for everybody and it's it's a transition and um, there's a way to tweak things so that you can still keep your energy, but still keep moving forward. Yeah. fast and loose now. So what is, how, how often do you visit the States?
0: Yeah, we used to be like two or three times a year. And now we, we were planning to go on a two month trip this summer. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that's happening now, but at least once a year, but usually for a really long stretch of time,
1: um, at least, at least four to six weeks. Is there one thing that you you can't wait to get it when you get back to the U.S.?
0: Well, there's a lot of things. Well, there's it, it, just a lot of things I want to eat when I go back. But it's funny. So in the time that I've been here, the amount of things that I can't get here has gotten smaller and smaller. Um, and it still comes down to chocolate chips and crystal hot sauce. Those are the two things that I like stock my suitcase with before we come back
1: wait chocolate chocolate Choc- chocolate, chips? chocolate oh. chips
0: they don't cho- you they have them in little boxes here which are really expensive but like a big bag of nestle toll house chocolate chips you can't really get those here or you can get them on internet shops, but they're like 10 bucks for a bat it's ridiculous so
1: yeah yeah and you're like i know how much yeah is. i'm not yeah. paying that yeah <laughs> okay the oddest food you have eaten on your travels oh um uh we ate crickets
0: in mexico I forget what they're called in Spanish, but we ate crickets.
1: I I haven't had the pleasure. What did it? What was the texture like? It's like
0: a crunchy cricket. I you know I tried it to try it, and that was enough.
1: I was not into <laughs> it. <laughs> okay, and then somebody thinking of you know moving to Germany, is it imperative to learn the language?
0: I think so. My experience completely changed. And my German is far from perfect, but I can live life comfortably in German. It just changes your whole experience. And you, you will, I think, be frustrated by things if you can't really speak the language. And it's a little bit of a catch 22 because I spent my first year or two here in this expat bubble, which was really great and really fun and helped me kind of adjust. But it wasn't until I could speak German that I really kind of settled in and didn't feel like an outsider and things didn't frustrate me as much as they might have otherwise but it's it is a tough language
1: and then one thing that you have in germany that you're wondering why the rest of the world just doesn't have it or doesn't do things in this way like germany does
0: beer gardens <laughs> they are the best thing ever really <laughs> tell me more and i don't even drink a lot of beer but it's, it's great because the way they work is it's these big, beautiful gardens with tables and you can buy food there, but you don't have to, this is what's so great. It's public life. As long as you buy beer, you can bring your own meals. So you can like have a little picnic and people put out their little tablecloths and bring their own food. And as long as you drink beer, it's just like, and they have playgrounds. If you have kids, you can just like kids could go play you could drink your beer chat with your friends beer garden's the best thing okay
1: ever. didn't think of that okay and then what's what is one social rule that you broke that you were not aware of when you got to germany
0: i walked on the bike lane <laughs> you learn real fast not to do that
1: Oh, this is perfect. I, I love that. I love that. It's it's just so amazing the things that are a big deal outside our own little bubbles. And, you know, people are looking yeah. at you like, how can you not know this? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they let you know. <laughs> did, did you get run over or were you, did they, somebody just?
0: Well, what they do, they ring the bell and yell at you. And now I see like poor tourists like getting the same treatment. And I think, oh, see, you poor, <laughs> yeah, get off yeah, the bike lane. So mad.
1: We don't have that, they making more but um cyclists are on the pavement or as they call it here the sidewalk and it freaks me out i'm like no there's a damn road go cycle there you've got wheels like yeah well he, he, yeah th-
0: here the bike lane is on the same it's elevated so it's on it's like half the sidewalk is for pedestrians and half is for bikes so that's why as an american i would just think it was all sidewalk <laughs> then you learn oh no that part is for bikes <laughs> So I still know enough not to ride a bike on the sidewalk in America.
1: <laughs> I haven't been gone that long. And they ring the bell. So that makes me just stand, um, which which isn't a good thing, but I can be confrontational. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. Can you just tell people um, the name of your business and how they can contact?
0: Oh, sure. Um, It's just my name, Eleanor Meyerhofer. That's E-L-E-A-N-O-R-M-A-Y-R-H-O-F-E-R. So you can find me at my website, which is eleanormeyerhofer.com or on Instagram, which is at Eleanor Meyerhofer. I'm also on LinkedIn. So those are probably the best ways to find me.
1: Thank you for listening to The Enterprising Expat. You can help the show grow and reach more people by sharing this episode with your friends. Cheers, and I'll see you in two weeks.